Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Excellent. And Daisy Double Drums, I suppose John Moore's head, double O R S E A D, S H E A D, was the Dreadly Guitarist. Ainsley, Ainsley Dunbar, wonderful drummer. Victor Brox was a, was a Doctor of Madness for one evening. Oh, really? Yeah, no. <laughs> Look at that perfect segue. That's a perfect segue. We started recording. My we God. This is The Word podcast with special guests. Uh, Richard Strange, Richard, welcome. It's okay, really yeah, lovely to be here. I knew, I knew that if all, like Steve all, I, <laughs> all I had to do was stay alive long enough to get the invitation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last man standing, you know. You've pretty much succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, yeah. Us, tell us about when Victor Brox was a member of uh, the Doctors Oh, of well, it was the same night that Ray Major of Mott the Hoople was, I think. We were rehearsing guitarists, and we gave them both the job the same night and regretted it the next day. So, fortunately, no contracts were signed, but we were looking for an... <clears throat> lead guitarist and then we had a quick sidestep change of plan and we thought no 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 not guitar violin of course electric violin we were sort of looking towards John Cale and uh, so we we recruited the young Urban Blitz then instead of uh, Victor Brox but the um, Urban Urban Blitz yes he was a a violinist and um, guitarist with us for the golden years of the Doctor's Madness. But, but the, the, the brilliant thing about Doctor's Madness is you think because because you were so early. I I I I don't think I ever saw you or whatever till about 1977. But of course you started in 1975, so you were actually at that tremendous bridge, as were the Sex Pistols, between the old world of yes. rock and roll and the new world. Because yeah. you kind of think punk bands always had, you know, of which of which more actually in yeah. a moment. Just let's do the traditional thing, just to oh, yeah. put Richard in context. The yes. question we always ask people when they come on the podcast mm. is is what music was in your house when you were growing up as a child. Did well, your parents have records and what were they? They, they had uh, the old uh, radiogram, you know, with the 78s. And um, we did have music in the family, but it's, a, it's slightly tangential. But it's, it's worth telling nonetheless. My, my mother's two brothers, or two of my mother's brothers, should I say. She did have three, one died. Um, uh, 
were in a, a, a close harmony combo called the Radio Revelers, which oh, some yeah. of your older listeners might <laughs> remember. <laughs> now, the Radio oh, Revelers did actually achieve quite um, a, a, a degree of commercial success. They, they were that sort of generation who were doing very well before the Second War. Then they went into the RAF and met people like uh, Derek Norton and Frank Muir and, and you know, came out. Um, uh, in the uh, they were, were demobbed and went straight back into sort of what was a sort of musical vaudeville, doing quite well. They played um, Radio City Music Hall in um, in in New York, oh. and Four Men One Song was their byline, and they could do this amazing close close harmony whistling as well, which, oh. which is very beautiful. Anyway, they um, they took up their career after the war, and they did things like the, the Crazy Gang show and, you know, and, and, yeah. and the, the, the concert halls, and they um, opened for, I think, for Sophie Tucker in the Glasgow Empire, you know, and uh, my uncle, used to, uh, uncle Stan, who was a very sort of clubbable, lovely, avuncular figure, um, always used to take great relish in showing me his press cuttings and say, look at this one. The Radio Revelers took the stage... Uh, but had little to distinguish them but their snappy hand microphones, you know. The, the sort of, the sort of uh, um, reviews that I was getting a, a, a mere 20 to 25 years later. Um, but when Uncle Stan died, Auntie Elsa, sometimes known as the She-Wolf of Buchenwald, um, said, we found this fantastic tape, and I won't do the accent, uh, in, in Stanley's um, uh, loft, and I thought you might like it, and it was a cassette tape. Uh, and I, I put it on, and it was a sort of BBC light programme broadcast from... It must have been 62 or something, so... We've been hearing a lot of talk recently about a phenomenon called Beatlemania that's supposed to be sweeping the nation. We sent our man out into the field to see if there's any truth in it. <laughs> so someone, a hapless individual, has put on his trilby and his raincoat and gone up to Halifax or something and said, uh, excuse me, sir... No excuse sign me, of it here. It's <laughs> back to the studio. The name's John, George, Paul and Ringo mean anything to you. Oh, no, I haven't heard of them. Uh, what about you, sir? Ringo, no, I haven't. What about the names Stan, Al, Fred and Arthur? Oh, yes, that's the Radio Rebel. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Probably the last time that happened. Literally more famous than the more Revelomania. For a very yeah. brief window. Oh, that's brilliant. So how did you get into music, though, with the Doctors of Madness? Um, I was absolutely besotted by the lyric. I've, I, I still um, wouldn't profess to any... Um, musical talent whatsoever a mere 35 years later. For sure. But, um, <laughs> lyrics was, was all, always my thing, and, and this is the other sort of um, thread that comes through some an ancestral chain, as all of you will um, find out if you buy my very amusing memoir. <laughs> <laughs> my great-great-uncle was Sir Arthur Quiller Cooch, who was a great uh, poetry anthologist and, and, and had, you know, he... He'd, um, compiled the great poetry anthology that was used in schools it was. for the length and breadth of the country Absolutely, for 30 I remember years. It well. So, you know, there's, a, the, 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 there's the word gene and Uncle Stan being the music gene. It was inevitable that some, at some point they were clapping. What got me into music was, was poetry, really, um, and a, a, a love of poetry at a, a, a ludicrously young age. And I wasn't a swat, um, but... I did love poetry, and I was blessed, as a lot of us are at some point in our lives, with a, a wonderful teacher who identified some interest and wasn't overweening or, or overbearing, but just said, well, if you like uh, Bob Dylan, try Allen Ginsberg. If you like Allen Ginsberg, try Esther Pound. If you like Dylan Thomas, try R.S. Thomas, you know, and just... 
gradually introduced me to all this stuff, and I loved all that, and I was just soaking it up like a sponge. And um, I wanted to be a poet, but of course, in the 60s and early 70s, that was no career. You know, you wanted to be in a band if you were a poet, and, you know, you could, you could be both. So Bob Dylan and, 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 and Lou Reed were my big sort of pillars for, for me. You know, the, the first Velvet Underground album I, I did actually queue up to buy in 1966 at... Um, did you? Record. It must have been a very short one stop in South Moles. Yeah, and that was the only where Danny you... Baker subsequently worked. There, and talked about on this see, podcast because, because that was the only place you could get imports, as they were called. It probably at the was. Time. Yes. Yeah. That was very <laughs> bold of you because I, I, was, I would have thought it might have been quite a short queue because actually that it was a very no copies at all. Well, it was only about a year later when it started to get discounted. Yeah. The people started to listen to it, and everyone well, thinks those things come out of the box as an instant hit. Don't they didn't at all. You see, as well as being this insufferable. Poetry bore. I was always a mass, also a massive fan of contemporary art, and 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 you know, and this is at the age of fourteen, fifteen, where other people went to football matches. I went to Robert Fraser's gallery in Duke Street and soaked up the newest Jim Dine show or Kleis Oldenburg or, or um, you know, Andy, Andy Warhol, and, and Warhol was huge for me. So it, I was very aware of Warhol and, by extension, the Velvet Underground. You know, as soon as it came out, and. Um, the, 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 the story is that only 1,100 copies of that album sold in, in, in the first flush. You know, the first, you know. That's right. Yeah. Brian Eno always says everyone who bought that album went on to form a band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is probably true. But only 1,100 of us did buy that album when it first came out. And then it was sort of reevaluated and reissued. And, and obviously now it's one of those albums that everyone feels that they grew up with. And, and if, if, if you believe everyone, that queue down South Moulton Street. Would have gone well, all the way down. Was, was going down yeah. as far as Marble Arch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just queuing up to get it. But, uh, so, you, but how did you form the group, the Doctors of Madness? So well, they came um, together. Was, okay, so I was supposed to go to university, but my father, in, in those days, you had to do a, a, a sort of fill in forms and get means tested and stuff. My father was very reluctant to disclose his income, not because it was substantial, but because. Um, I think he just did Tax reasons? Uh, I think he was a very, very secretive man. Didn't think it was anyone's business. You know, he was, he was middle management. He was a statistician. And um, um, no one in our family had ever been to university, so he didn't see why I should be the first. You know, I was getting a bit up myself. And so I did get offered a place at um, East Anglia to do Scandinavian studies, of all things, um, I think there was a girl in the picture of the living in Australia. She's Scandinavian. She but, well, yeah. funny enough, yeah, Mark, so, she yeah, was. Yeah. Uh, yes, she was. But uh, so I was offered the place, and I didn't take it, or I wasn't able to take it because we couldn't get the funding. Um, and so, despite my father, I went off to uh, Copenhagen anyway, and there, in a coffee shop in Copenhagen in 1969, I bought a guitar, my first guitar. Very late, I was 18. So. No chance of me ever becoming a, a, a good player, but I, I was I was keen, I was enthusiastic, and um, pity anyone who was on the receiving end of me strumming away these, yeah. these, these uh, E and A minor, you know, and, and singing songs that lasted 25 minutes that were very verbose, but only uh, around a two-chord pattern. When the, when the Doctors of Man started, it, 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 it was pretty much the same time as the Sex Pistols. No, we, we were before. before. We started seventy four. You were before. But so, was your musical vision in any way similar? Because the, the, you all kind of joined up a bit later mm. on, which we'll come to. What happened? My musical vision was predicated principally upon Velvet Underground, 
David Bowie to an extent and William Burroughs. They were they were my big three. And William Burroughs was probably the biggest in terms of a, an inspiration of, of, of what I thought as subject matter was, which was about control. It was about um, propaganda. It was about um, slightly sci-fi, slightly futuristic. Um, uh, we would be oddly named characters, hence I became Kid Strange, and we had That's Urban right. Blitz and Peter Dilemma, you know, and a, you know, quite Barrosian, this sort of dystopian world of William Burroughs, and that really appealed to me, so um, we took that up, and a, quite a lot of faffing around over two, probably over two years, of trying out different lineups. So the drummer I'd been to school with, so he was always the stalwart, and the bass player we got in, I'd known him for a while, and I'd never thought he was quite right, but he turned out to be very right. Um, and then we were always lacking this sort of four that we tried out synthesize. We tried out Victor Brox and you know and Ray Major and you know lots of different guitarists, um, but they weren't making the racket that I could hear in my head. I had this idea of a fantastic racket. You know, if you listen to um, Velvet Underground, Black Angel Death Song or somewhere that viola, uh, John Cale's viola is just soaring away there and making just a fabulous uh, racket. Um, we found this guy, um, Urban Blitz, uh, uh, who was a, a violinist and viola player and could play a bit of guitar. And as soon as we tried him on a couple of songs, then that was like the, 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 the missing bit of the puzzle. There we, there we had the sound. So this was 1974. So, But how did you feel when, when you've got your sound, which is very much based in, in, in the Velvet Underground, hence the, the mm. fiddle player, I understand that, mm. when you're suddenly supported by... And we want, we want recollections of all three. Mm. I think the Jam, mm. uh, Joy Division, mm. and I think the Sex Pistols. Mm. So, mm. so suddenly this is coming up behind you, well, underneath yeah. you. Well, what happened was... OK, we settle upon our lineup, and we start to get quite good, because we're very um, committed... To, to this thing, and I started setting up um, self-promoted gigs in Twickenham, in a, a pub in Twickenham called the Cabbage Patch, and this is 1975 by now. And so in 1975, I set up something called a month of Sundays, which was four consecutive Sundays at the um, at the Cabbage Patch. And the first one we got 20 people, the next one we got 40 people, the next one we got 80 people, and the third and the fourth one, we tore the place apart with 150 people in, going mad. And by that time, a sort of word, a bit of a buzz had got out. And at the end of the gig, with our equipment still sort of smoking because we were so good that <laughs> night on stage, uh, and us in a little broom cupboard before we actually had to undertake that rather humiliating ritual of going to clear the stage ourselves, you, you know, in front, equipment. in front of the yeah. fans, and we just rocked into a frenzy. <laughs> yeah, um, there, was, there, there, there were two knocks on the door in short succession, succession um, by... Um, media professionals. The first one was Jonathan King coming and saying he wanted to manage us. Um, <laughs> what was your reaction to that? Uh, well, we didn't like Genesis, so he didn't have a chance. He was managing Genesis was. at the time, and yeah. um, we, we, we would have no truck with him at all. We were desperate, but not that desperate. Um, and we didn't like him at that time anyway. We thought he was prissy and he was slightly creepy and, and has um, history has uh, later... Um, Shown us. Who was the second? The second one was a was a cigar chomping Jewish East End wide boy called Brian Morrison. And Brian Morrison had been in the business in the sixties, managing Pink Floyd, managing T Rex, managing Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation, the Pretty Things, a lot of bands like that. Had got into music publishing, made absolute fortunes with um, uh, 
everyone from Pink Floyd to, to some Bee Gees song. Brian had the B-side of Saturday Night Fever oh, single, so which sold work. 20 million. And you get just you as get much as just as much yeah. for a B-side. B-side. It's, it's, it's a great, great pleasure Paul telling Frankie that. goes to Hollywood, and so, Morley will attest. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. And uh, Brian took great joy in telling me that having a B-side to that record was like having 200 consecutive number ones in this country. <laughs> How very demoralised. You, know, so like you only had to Where sell 100,000 records to get yeah. a number one. Yeah. So 20 million worldwide with your song on the B-side. Yeah. It was like 200 consecutive uh, number one. Right. Anyway, Morrison came in, chomping on a cigar, said, um, I've been out of business sometime, my son. That's the best thing I've seen. Someone had told him that we were hot and said, come down and see. If you're looking for a band to get back in the business. Yeah. This was, and he was in partnership with um, another 60s character called Justin de Villeneuve. Twiggy's um, manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the two of them, Morris and de Villeneuve, were a management company. And it was like a dream come true for us. There we were. We just rocked Twickenham into, to, to its knees. The instruments were still smoking. And Morrison said, come in and see me in Mayfair on Monday, boys, and I'll sign you. And it was like, up until that point, we were semi-pro, I suppose you'd what call it. What can go wrong? What can go wrong? Yeah. So... We went in on Monday, signed here, 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 and here. So that would be management, recording, production, <laughs> publishing. <laughs> First of all, okay. Yeah. Houses. Uh, don't worry cars, about all that. Yeah, yeah. Material. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the deal was he was going to put us into a rehearsal studio for four weeks so that we would just get hot. We'd be in there every day. Give your jobs up tomorrow. You're professional musicians now. Right. <laughs> he hired, you know, PA. It was just over the arches in Charing Cross Road. We found a warehouse and set stuff up there. And that's really how the Dr. Madders wrote and recorded and learned, learned their set. And then at the end of that four weeks, he got the big moguls in because he was so connected. He got Clive he Davis it. to come in for, uh, to sit in that chair, you know, slightly moth-eaten, slightly What's damp. You, in your Clive rehearsal Davis. studio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You played your set. Sit down, yeah. Clive, Clive well, Davis, was he running Arister at the time? Or? Uh, he was uh, still uh, at CBS, still I think. CBS. Yeah. 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 So... <laughs> He's sitting down in this chair, and we were using quite a lot of sort of um, low-tech, low-budget theatricality at the time, including smoke and um, strobes and stuff. So we were doing that. There's a nasty smell of burning. Clive Davis's chair burst into flames, and a, 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 a loose wire underneath it had ignited the, um, the, the capoc or the upholstery that was going. You saw him get up, and um, he fled. We didn't sign to CBS. That's but we how did hot them, yeah, yeah, yeah. the madness are. <laughs> in the furniture starts to combust. Yeah. You've been listening to the free feed of The Word podcast. The full album-length version is only available to subscribers to the magazine. To sign up and to hear the rest of this podcast, go to www.wordpodcast.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.